Wonder Things Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 more minutes with Gail Carriger. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Lauren Scribe-Harris. And you have tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is an opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. Indeed, and it is a never-ending quest. If if there's one testament to the round table is that this this is a journey, not a destination. And Lauren Harris, I could not think of someone better to join me on this segment of our journey than you, ma'am. My sister of podcasting, <laughs> author of Exercising Aaron Union, and numerous podcasting efforts in the world. I am delighted to have you here, ma'am. Thank you. All right, thank you so much, Dave, and it is wonderful to be here. And if I may offer one correction, it is exercising Aaron Win. Really? Win is how that's pronounced. I, yeah, it's Vietnamese. I, I don't know. I am deeply, deeply embarrassed, but then t- in my defense, I've read this. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have the audio <laughs> version with me. so That's fine. See, now that's cool, though. Now, this is insider information because anybody that has read you is going to go, I thought it was like Nunyan. No. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, very cool. Well, Lauren, sit back, you know, top off your libation of choice. Uh-huh. Uh, right. uh, this is a rare opportunity. Our guest host for this episode is a returning guest host. But when she was first on, I wasn't doing these long, freakishly stalkerish intros. <laughs> <laughs> and now I get to do one. So, so oh. let me introduce you to our guest host. May I? Ready. <laughs> Excellent. Our guest host was born in Bolinas, a small town in Northern California. Her parents were, and I quote, a British expat gardener with a tea habit and a woodworking Dane who sidelined as a philosophical scribbler. Now, she would eventually pick up both the tea habit and the scribbling habit. But as a child, she enjoyed simpler delights, like sandball wars on the beach, which is like snowball wars, only a lot harder, and in the summer. Uh, At the tender age of three years old, her father let her bash on his monstrous 1950s typewriter, which left an impression because to this day, she has a preference for keyboards that make the proper clickety-clack sound. Now, her mother being British, she was raised on British children's stories like Tom's Midnight Garden, The Borrowers, The Water Babies, and Wind in the Willows. Her mother would read to her in bed, and if our guest host didn't like the end of the book, she would explain to her mother very carefully that the author got it wrong and then (laughs) inform her of the real ending. Clearly, she was destined to be a tale weaver, and weave tales she did. At the age of eight, she wrote a masterpiece of modern literature, according to her mother, a thoughtful and allegorical tale involving calico cats and flying carpets. And vigilant readers of our guest host's debut novel, Solace, may have noticed that a calico feline makes a cameo appearance. Coincidence? I think not. (laughs) It was also at the age of eight that our guest host was genuinely transformed 
transformed by a work of fiction. Specifically, the first book in Tamara Pierce's Lioness Quartet series titled Elana, The First Adventure. Mm. Now, she acquired that. Yes. She, now, she acquired this text, and this was a lush, hardbound bit of bookery, uh, by latching onto it in the bookstore and literally refusing to let it go. <laughs> it was up to her parents to either buy the book or move their daughter's bed into the bookstore. <laughs> now, while our guest host would doubtless have been thrilled at the prospect of the latter, they opted to purchase the book, which our guest host promptly consumed. And it was a revelation. The protagonist, Elana, was strong, smart, stubborn, witty, and courageous. And up to this point, our guest host never knew women in fantasy could be that way. It changed her as a reader and prompted her to revise her understanding of what it meant to be female. The book would define her young adulthood. And because of that book, she identified herself from then on as a reader of sci-fi and fantasy. Now, it was also her love of that book that connected her to a friend in high school who would become her best friend and who, to this day, is one of her most stalwart and trusted beta readers. But at 15, it was that same friend who had a short story accepted to be published. And see, that's the thing about best friends at that age. If one of them does something, by God, the other one is going to do it too. And she did. It took two years, but our guest host at 17 sold a short story to the same publication. Now, this was in high school, and by all accounts, she was a demanding, arrogant, overachiever, nerd type, constantly reading and writing. And oh, dear friend, she was a nerd. <laughs> Watching She-Ra cartoons and Star Trek The Next Generation, collecting New Warriors comics well into college, I might add, and watching Tron and Doctor Who at her grandfather's house in England. And she was proud to be weird, nerdy, and an outsider. And she was guided and mentored by some truly remarkable teachers and librarians. And she took that gift to heart, making it her responsibility in her adult years to pass on that mentorship to others. Now, it was during this time that she went to her first convention, Baycon, in San Jose, California. And the cool thing is, this was a gift from her best friend's mother, who set them up with rooms and passes for the con. <laughs> in spite of the fact that she contracted horrible stomach flu, it was still one of the best times of her life. And she learned to sew and took up cosplay, and that led to a completely unexpected flair for fashion. Now, keep in mind, this was during the grunge era, so uh -huh. it was easy and cheap to hit the thrift shops and be de rigueur. She even started to throw massive costume parties, and her house quickly became one of the primary gathering places. Yeah, she had the cool parents. Uh, her, her parents, however, divorced when she was still young. And I can tell you from personal experience, that is never easy as a kid. And as you might imagine, it altered her conceptions of family. And careful readers will see themes of friendship, of, of building one's own family, and the importance of loyalty woven through many of her books. So... High school wraps up with her having written several acclaimed exposés on the nature of Roman battle tactics, and it's time for her to decide what she's going to be. Surely, you say, she set off to be a writer. Not exactly. She did want to explore stories, but real stories. Real old 
stories. <laughs> she set out to be an archaeologist. So she scored her undergrad degree in archaeology from Oberlin College. And you remember that whole overachiever aspect from high school? Yeah. When she got that major, she also minored in anthropology, classics, theology, geology, and philosophy. <laughs> and then wow. she went on, yeah, no kidding, right? And then she went on to attend graduate school at England's Nottingham University. And then she started participating in digs and excavations all over the world. And it was boring as sin. Oh my God. Now, to be clear, she truly loved the work, but there's a level of OCD in the archaeology business that just wasn't working for her. Now, a sliced finger took her from the dig site to the field laboratory analyzing pottery shards, and she was really good at it. And she got better hours, a cleaner workspace, and got to examine all the best artifacts. So when it came time to get her master's, she got a master's in science and archaeological materials with a focus on inorganic and then a Master of Arts at the University of California, Santa Cruz in anthropology with a focus on ceramic artifact analysis. And here's a word of warning, friends. Do not hand our guest host a plate full of food on an intriguing ceramic plate because it's entirely likely she'll just flip that sucker over and check for the maker's mark. And that would be awkward and potentially messy. Don't do it. Uh, so now here's the thing. She was working on her PhD when her first book contract came through. She never finished the PhD, never looked back, and has no regrets. <laughs> Wait, what? Book contract? How did that happen? Holy crap. Well, come on, guys. You know she's been writing all this time, right? Starting in college with some much maligned and short-lived treatises on gender dynamics and ancient Greek plays, and then moving on to three other books, none of which got any traction with the publishers or agents. So she analyzed the rejections, deduced what the editors seemed to enjoy most about her work, and then she wrote Soulless, the first of her Parasol Protectorate series, a steampunk comedy of manners with large Scottish werewolves, battle parasols, and an abundance of treacle tots. Now, she submitted it to an open slush call, and two months later, she's sitting there drinking a latte at her favorite cafe when she learned it had sold. And I assure you, there was sputtering and foam loss aplenty at that point. <laughs> Now, five books of the Parasol Protectorate, plus the manga adaptations, were all New York Times bestsellers and were followed by her YA Finishing School series, the first three of which were also New York Times bestsellers, and the fourth of which is due out in November. And she just launched the Custard Protocol series last March with Prudence, and the next book of that, Imprudence, is releasing sometime 2016. She's also written several urban fantasy tales and a sci-fi tale that was recently released in audio form titled Crud Rat. Now, dear friends, our guest host is one of those people. We all know them. The ones who, even at an early age, celebrate the qualities that distinguish them from the status quo and pursue their passions fearlessly. Now, that's not to say they're not afraid, only that for them, the fear is secondary to honoring what they truly love. Those people stand out in the world, demonstrating that the status quo is merely a statistical average, and that average is rarely a worthy goal for which to strive. 
Now, her top pinball score is in the neighborhood of 800,000 points. She names all of her inanimate objects. Her favorite shoes are Ms. Moo's, which she hunts for on Hate Street, and Via Spiga, which she finds perusing the rack at Nordstrom's. Her favorite word is canoodle, followed closely by kerfuffle. She can slice a loaf of bread perfectly straight, and when it came time to take her summa cum laude photo in high school, it was on the same day as the last episode of Star Trek Next Generation. And she was such a nerd, she was in full morning regalia, complete with black hat and veil. Dear (laughs) friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the round table for the second time, Gail Carragher. Gail, it has been far too long since you have graced the halls of the round table, and I am so very delighted that we were able to bring you back and share some thoughts. Thank you so much, ma'am. Oh my gosh, that was freakishly stalkerish. And, <laughs> and thank you for having me. Wow, that was, it really did feel like I was the double doors were being thrown open, and I was being announced by a man in full regalia with you know slapping the big staff down on the marble floor. Yes, 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 my my work is done here. I ride <laughs> off into the, the sunset. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, Gail, before we dive into our 20 minutes with, there's there's a question that I want to ask. Obviously, I, I've been stalking you for at least a few days on the interwebs. <laughs> um, and I, I, I found this one thing from an interview with the airship ambassador back in 2012 about guinea pigs. Oh, and, dear. And Boy. You, you talk about this sound that guinea pigs make when they're bunched <gasps> oh, together, a hundred yes. plus. And I just wanted to hear you say, what does what is that sound? It's a kind of, let me see if I can do it. It's a kind of a <laughs> noise. Uh, but that's just one person making it. So imagine it like on multiple different pitches and and a whole lot of guinea pigs making it. <laughs> Should we all and try then, that? <laughs> <laughs> Shall we? Here we go. Let's okay, do it. One. Two, three. <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. Right. It's a little scrunchy noise when they're eating their grasses and stuff. Yeah, it's a crazy noise. And I think I was probably talking about the fact that one of the I have to tell this story. Yes, it's please. nothing to do with anything. But it's like one of the marvelous things about archaeology is that you upend this weird stuff. Um so koi are food source for the Inca. And uh they would stockpile food which meant stockpiling live koi on these in these amazing kind of structures up the sides of mountains for when um, you know they were repelling invaders and stuff like that and uh, one of the things that they would they would stockpile these koi under the floor in these long um, stone storage compartments basically with grated fronts we assume they're grated we're not quite sure how the fronts were but um, and that, that they could be fed through and everything and but they would be living in retreat <laughs> on top of those floors <laughs> which would be warbling and there's just this, this like fantastic idea of these sort of fierce Inca warlords and their warbling floors <laughs> <laughs> well imagine the environment I mean if you if you had to live there and so on and constantly have that insane murmuring underneath it would drive you mad i would think or 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 turn you very cute one of the two i'm not sure <laughs> i actually because the reason i know this is because when i was working in peru we worked it with a cage full of them right next to us in our laboratory we were in the, <laughs> the outer yard of, of a family and they they just keep sort of leveled cages kind of like apartment blocks of 
um, of koi. And as the kois get fatter and fatter, they get migrated up to the top of the <laughs> until they get eaten. Yeah, so we got and and they they can be sort of this sort of a quiet warbling most of the time, and then they get very excitable when there's when there's about to be food. See, so but friends, you get used to it. It's like a white noise. You get let, let there be some guinea pig fan fiction out there. Let's just oh, let that happen you. right now, right now. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Gail. That was that was a burning curiosity for me. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, let's let's get into this. Let's not let's not bandy words. Let's get down to our twenty minutes with Gail Carriger. I will set the clock. I'm and, ready. And, and I'm going to ignore the clock because this is just going to be too much fun. All right. <laughs> um, my first question, Gail, is this. I, I'm I'm very curious. I mean, the, the the scope of your work, the richness, the the complexity, the humor. So much of your work is this wonderful mannered process, and I'm very intrigued to explore that process of developing these ideas into stories. So, so you, you, you get an idea, uh, uh, and, and you have no idea if this idea is a good idea or not. So, so at that point, creatively, what is it about that idea that would move you to explore it further? And at what point during that exploration do you say, okay, I'm doing this and start (laughs) writing the outline? Well, okay. So, the idea is usually conceptual. And so I have this sort of like, uh, like the sol- solace is a good one to start with, but I had this idea like, well, what if vampires and werewolves really have been around a whole time? How would that impact culture? So sort of this intellectual archeological thing, like how would it affect objects, uh, society? So if they're existing, and of course I have to do it in a period setting. So I was like, well, if vampires and werewolves are out and in Victorian society, well, this explains so much about Victorian society, why they have high collars, why they, you know, why they think pale is beautiful, you know? So it's just sort of a thought experiment, but me writing it requires that I have usually a sort of snapshot scene of two characters in that world. So I have to really visualize my main character and I have to really visualize her because it's almost always a her sort of personality within the structure of that world and and see how she would interact with it. Um, not necessarily the whole plot, but like that one little capsule scene. And I literally see it as if it were sort of a movie mm-hmm. on screen. And then and that means that I, f- that I can work in that world. So I tend to have, like right now, I've got a bunch of different ideas sort of percolating in the background for new series or different series or different books or whatever. But I, if I can't see a scene, it just sits percolating. Really? Um, and I'm not going to bother to write it. That's intriguing. So, so until you can actually put two characters in a scene together and have that scene be intense, be exciting, be something yes. because, ooh, yes, I want to know how they got More. here and I want to know what happens next. The, yeah. the idea continues to just sit in sort of the back burner simmer yeah, stage. Exactly. And for me, it's um, it pretty much has to be dialogue. Uh, I, I, I'm the most, as a writer, my most comfortable safe space is writing dialogue because I'm, I know my characters so well that if they're talking to each other, it's really easy for me to write because I'm just, I know them, I know what they're going to say. So the moment I can imagine my main character in dialogue with another character, and I think one of the reasons people, readers often gravitate to my secondary characters is because of this, because (laughs) the secondary characters are also very much alive for me. And Mm. they're also part of the initial creative process of the whole world. So for example, with Solus, the first scene that came to me is the scene where Ivy and Alexia are walking in the park together. And it's a very kind of quiet scene, but they're walking in the park and they both have their parasols up and they're twirling their parasols. And Alexia is lamenting having accidentally killed a vampire the night before and how embarrassing it was (laughs) at this point. (laughs) 
and that scene was it. Like the whole world just sort of popped from that scene. And then they, they sort of drift over and there's the, this sort of dirigible taking off and landing in the middle of Hyde Park. And I was like, that's it. That's my world. <laughs> um, but I had to have those two characters talking to each other for it to, for anything to happen. Well, and, and your primary protagonist, one of the most engaging secondary characters. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Very cool. Yeah. So, um, as was mentioned in your stalkerish intro, uh, <laughs> you had a, a fairly robust beginning in academics. So I was actually wondering um, how your academic lifestyle and your writing lifestyle uh, sort of compare. Is there anything that fed into your your writing process from your academic process or, or vice versa since you started writing early <laughs> on as well? <laughs> well, I think there's a I think there's a, a, a number of ways it touches on. And the more I think about this, the more I, I notice more of them. And it touches on both the craft and kind of the way I am emotionally as a writer. So from a craft perspective, I got, because I was an archaeologist, a lot of, and I was, a, you know, I, I was an academic research as well as a field archaeologist. I got a lot of good research ability. So I'm really good at tracking down the information that I need because I do write alt historical. Occasionally, I I like to say like, I can put laser beams on my top hats if I just explain it properly. So I will (laughs) deviate from real history. Um, uh, I'll give you a really good example. I'm traveling to a part of the world in the current book I'm writing, which is Imprudence, the second custard protocol book. And there is really very little data on this part. In fact, if you find a, a Victorian map from the 1890s, this part of the map, and we're traveling into the depths of Africa. I was going to say um, the deep Sahara, right? Yeah, it says uncharted on the map. <laughs> Terra and incognita. So, exactly. And so there are uh, there are cities and, and stuff in this area, but uh, the Victorians didn't know anything about it. And my characters are Victorians, so I always tell from their perspective. So I'm just like, I'll just make it up, you know. I'll just make it, and my, one of my tricks, and this is a a total writer trick, is just to make it that much more steampunk. I'm just like, okay, so there's a, there's a a microcosmic uh, industrial, mini industrial revolution that's also going on here, and so even if we eventually do discover more about some of these cities, archaeologically speaking, and these are places that are now very um, war-torn, so it's hard, uh, I can I, I can just be like, well, my city is which we're steampunk, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so I have a cop-out. Uh, but I do, I do like to research. So that's one thing. I got a lot of research skills. I mm. think um, some of my deadline like uh i was really initially i was really good at always making my deadlines and stuff and i think i was trained to write um quickly because of academic papers and stuff yeah. but um the publishing industry has beat that out of me rather quickly uh, <laughs> <laughs> so those are kind of sort of the practical things uh from a sort of story perspective i think people will notice although it might not necessarily be obvious straight up the bat that objects are really important in my world <laughs> so a lot of my characters have physical objects that are associated with them that are kind of uh, foreshadows or markers of their personality, like Alexia is never without her parasol. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the in the new series, the Custard Protocol series, the ship itself, mm-hmm. the spotted custard, is almost a character of her own. Uh, that kind of a thing. So that's another aspect. And then the emotional aspect is one of the things when I switched careers that I missed the most about academia is. Not necessarily sort of a Wittgensteinian private language, but there is a, a sort of t- 
tech private language that mm-hmm. two people of the same education and the same um, specialty will share. So if you, I can have a conversation with another archaeologist who's a materials expert, that's almost like it's an alien tongue to anybody trying to <laughs> right. listen in. Well, and writers um, have the same shorthand, you yeah. know. Yeah, that, oh, that's a third-person close POV, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah. It's a pistolary, exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And so I found myself missing not just that language, but the emotional connection you have when you get excited <laughs> about a subject and have those mm-hmm. conversations. And so most of my, my readers and, and my author friends will, will know and notice that I'm a, I'm still a major convention goer. And part of that is for me that I need, I, I discovered that as a writer, I have to have that emotional connection. I really need yeah. to talk to other writers. I need to have those, those conversations. Uh, and it's, it keeps me saying, I, I, I'm, I'm an introvert. I think most writers are, or, or a lot of them. I don't know about you, Dave, <laughs> or you, Lord. Oh, so you guys are probably extroverts, aren't you? No, I'm an introvert. She's definitely. totally an introvert. I am uh, not. Play it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think like a lot of, a lot of introverts, I'm an introvert in the sort of, uh, currently popular accepted definition of it, which is I find large social um, interactions slightly exhausting, but mm-hmm. I also need to talk to my fellow writers. Yeah. Um, and I thrive on the kind of environment where it's a smaller number of authors who I know and get along with and we're all kind of companionably writing together and I can, I can ask people questions and, mostly how to spell things. <laughs> so, um, and that was something that I had to learn about myself as a writer because when I, when I switched career, careers, obviously it was a whole new career to me. Dramatically, um, sure. Yeah, yeah. And then of course the last thing is that archaeologists are infamous, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, for being the biggest drinkers in any academic <laughs> department. I didn't know oh, so that. So that went well to your transition to a Yeah, and I was like, that's perfect for being a writer, man. I've already, the only two um, conventions that will drink out a hotel bar are writers and archaeologists. So, so prepared for that one. <laughs> God, you were they just laid all the founding stones for you. For <laughs> I know, I didn't, these are all things that I was like, oh, oh okay, that, that's a good connection. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Gail Carriger after this brief promotional break. I'm the first. The first of a new kind of human being. The first and only true artificial intelligence. I'm not a huge fan of that term, though. I prefer not to use the term stranded time traveler. I am merely on an extended vacation. Against my will. Talking with normal people is almost impossible. I'm constantly on guard. What did you do over the weekend? I definitely didn't drink any blood. (laughs) I'd never do a thing like that. I mean, brother, when you crash your spaceship on Earth, you are pretty much shit out of luck. We don't need aliens anymore. Not when people have Twitter and YouTube and podcasts and Periscope and Voibox and Winger and heaven knows what else. I don't see the point in anyone living in the coffin. Right? Who benefits from our silence? Certainly not us. Look, I I could take out this interview guy. I I mean, I could, like, wrap this chain around his neck and kill him right now. Do you have any more questions for us? Well, I got a few, so if you want to hold off on wrapping around the... The chain that would be good. This is Jared Axelrod. Join me on the voice of Free Planet X, where I interview aliens and time travelers, vampires and witches, advanced AIs and ancient monstrosities. It's this American life for a science fictional universe, and it's only at planetx.libsyn.com. 
Now, let's get back to the conversation with Gail Carriger. You, you mentioned something I want to go back to and explore a little bit further. You talked about when, when you went into Terra Incognita, you said, well, I'm, I'm going to make this steampunk. And, and you invoked, you know, the Industrial Revolution as, as, a, as a cornerstone for making something steampunk. What else makes something steampunk in, in your estimation of the genre? This is like the $64,000 question. Like everybody has a different idea about what steampunk means. Sure. I'm in love with the history of the genre. So I, it's the, I, I think it all comes back to the archaeologist thing. So I am delighted by finding the tethers between the early Gothic movement in the Victorian era and all of the commercial genres that spawned from it. So out of got, the Gothics came... Um, Adventure books, which led to westerns and mm. romances, science fiction and fantasy. This all came out of the gothics. And you can see these threads of archetypes and moods and ways of writing. And, and not to mention the fact that critics vilified the gothics. And that's <laughs> carried forward to this still vilification <laughs> of genre, right? Yep. So steampunk ties back to the gothics in this lovely roundabout way because it's being set back in that era in its way. Um, and I took, a, took it a step further by putting the paranormal element back in as well. And and the monsters in my first series are all monsters from the Victorian gothic movement. Right. Just reimagined as how they would actually sit in Victorian society. Mm. But the steampunk side of it has to do with one of those major tenets of gothic literature, which is setting and mood. And, you know, the, the way that the castle of Otoronto is, the castle itself is so important and the crumbling of it and the smell of it and the mold is indicative of uh, the owner of that castle and how his, he's morally crumbling and all that, ah, those sorts of okay. things. And I think steampunk really pulls that back in. Now, hard sci-fi can do it as well. It's gotten, hard sci-fi has gotten more and more concept driven, but you can certainly get setting and technology as a very important and influential part of the storytelling. But I think steampunk also does that. So for me, what I'm looking for in steampunk is that same sense of atmosphere and setting as character that you would get in the early Gothic, Victorian romantic Gothics. And also for me, it's important that a steampunk book, technology plays us a heavy role in plot or in, in character movement. So in other words, if you completely extracted the steampunk element from the story, the story would fall apart. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, and you're 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 marvelous at the fetishization fetishization—that's the word—of technology <laughs> and and the artifacts, as you observed earlier. That's that's certainly a cornerstone. But that's a, that's an intriguing ob- observation that it if you can extract the steampunk elements that a story has integrated and still have a standing story that stands on its own, you you haven't done steampunk uh, uh, as, as committed perhaps as you could and and of course there's tons of wiggle room like you can get right, um, right. a romance book that is steampunk and by its very nature romance must concentrate on the relationship of the two main characters mm-hmm. and so steampunk is relegated to setting under those circumstances mm-hmm. uh, much in the way that a romantic fantasy if you remove the magicalness uh, or the you know the fantasiness of of a romance fantasy, 
it will still hold because romance by definition must be that central relationship. So I am forgiving if the author is clearly like, this is a romance with a, the steam, with a steampunk setting, which is one of the reasons that I tend to sort of define myself as primarily comedy of manners. For me, everything is sacrificed on the altar of kind of a, a comedy of manners table. So it has to be funny and it has to be about the relationships between the characters. And sometimes steampunk takes a backseat because of that. Hmm. Um, but that's, I mean, that is always the struggle if you're writing cross genre is where do you seat yourself? And I found my books kind of, each book is a different, is, is pretty amorphous. Each, they sort of move from one part of cross genre to another. But for a book to me to define itself primarily and solely as steampunk, that technological element is integral. Cool. Excellent. Thank you. That, that, that clarifies that point very nicely for me. Mention a little bit about the about reading um, other steampunk and things that you talked about making something steampunk. But uh, I, I want to ask more questions about your reading habits in general. I, I know you have a fairly specific set of criteria for <laughs> for what you what you read, um, and I'd I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Um, I have a. A blog post that's trope scale love. So if anybody wants to Google it, you can you can take <laughs> those at some point. Um, and it as a so I do. It's hard to do, but I do separate myself mentally as a reader versus as an author. So mm-hmm. um, and what I write isn't necessarily what I'm going to gravitate towards reading. So I would hesitate, for example, to read a book that defines itself as you know great for fans of Gail Carriger because I would be scared to be influenced by the other author's mm. voice if it's too close to my own. And I would be scared that I would be annoyed if the <laughs> specific things that I gravitate towards, like accurate descriptions of food and clothing, were not accurate in <laughs> in the other person's <laughs> book. Whereas their descriptions of, say, military regimes might be way better than mine. Uh, but I wouldn't know to care. So, um, <laughs> so I tend to, if I'm going to pick up a steampunk at all, which I almost never read a steampunk while I'm writing it, uh, which means I, I read very little because <laughs> <laughs> you're always um, writing. <laughs> I'm always writing these days. Uh, I will gravitate towards something that's very dark and atmospheric, or very different from something that I might write, uh, perhaps set in the United States or something like that, like Sherry Priest stuff. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I tend to not read dark stuff, <laughs> so I uh, I have an absolute adoration. At, entirely, I think, as a result of Tamara Pierce, of the girl disguises herself as a boy in order to in- infiltrate and subvert a patriarchy. Like, that's like, <laughs> I will read any book, <laughs> like literally any book, I, or I will give any book a try. I, I don't care who mm-hmm. wrote it, where it comes from, anything that has that specific trope. <laughs> I think Scott Westerfeld's Leviathan. Leviathan. Mm, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Um, although I will, I will add immediately, as we've just mentioned to white male writers, that uh-huh. I require my books to pass the Bechdel test. So if they don't, I won't read it. And I didn't realize this until recently. I was struggling. I, I, I spent a lot of time struggling with why I was so turned off by certain, a lot of the, what I call the old bearded gods of sci-fi, like Heinlein or whatever. <laughs> and finally I was like, oh, oh, they just don't, they don't pass the Bechdel test. Like, oh, that's why I can't stand them. <laughs> <laughs> So much of my life is friendships. I also re- and and 
conversations with women and friends, friendships with women um, and men. And I'm beginning to realize that I also really like a book where a woman and a man can carry on a perfectly respectable plutonic friendship. Like, yes. Why is that mm-hmm. so hard to find in, in literature? But the, the, I, don't, I don't really sort of, I suppose Bettina would be a, uh, a trope. Um, but I, I will, yeah, I'll instinctively yeah. react to books that don't have that by just, yeah. you know, screaming. Well, right I can definitely it. say the, that the Westerfeld books do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Excellent. Well, and, um, and actually that kind of raises an intriguing point that I wanted to discuss with you. Um, uh, during, again, during my research, I came across an interview that you did on the uh, Stellar Four blog uh, back in 2011, uh, where you observed that writers like culture are trapped in a paradigm of unoriginality. <laughs> and, and, and this angry. <laughs> yeah, you were clearly. And and this and with with good reason, because this was your discussion of the idea of the, the skinned female characters. The, the uh, female yeah, were just yeah. men with boobs, basically. Yeah. And and you know, granted, clearly there was there was some emp- emotion behind that and some and some anger. But I was I was wondering, do you do you still feel that way? I do. And I, it has to do with um a concept that's really difficult to get across, partly because there is no good book on this subject. So um, everybody, I feel like, is is familiar with the hero's journey and with Campbell's basic withdrawal and return, isolation, the quest, all of those things, father figure, two women, uh, temptation, all that sort of stuff. But so, so, so few people get an education in gender mythology and the heroine's journey, of which there is one. And uh, we can look to Isis, Ishtar, um, Inanna, and Demeter. The Demeter myth is a great, a very great example of that. And the female, the heroine's journey has a, a different set of criteria, which I I find myself often looking for and is... For me, often when I get a skinned character, which is a, a female character that's basically acting like a man, it's because she's being a hero, and a, a hero in the archetypal sense of the word, rather than a heroine. And a heroine does accomplishes things different. Her her patterns of withdrawal and return are different. How she succeeds in her quest is different, and she does that by building networks and and creating connections. So a hallmark of strength in a heroine is that she asks for help. And it is almost impossible to articulate that that is a strength because we are so accustomed in modern society as perceiving that as weak. But Mm. that's part of being female is solving things through communication and, you know, sitting down and... I, I like to say like a crisis happens in one of my books, something explodes, everybody runs around screaming and then sits down and has tea and talks about it. <laughs> um, and that's powerful and strong. And uh, Alexia and Prudence and Sophronia, all of them are powerful by understanding their friends and their friends' abilities and weaknesses and their own abilities mm. and weaknesses and figuring out how to best deploy that. So Sophronia has her moments of solitary, you know, having to mm-hmm. to figure something out on her own, but almost invariably part of figuring that out is understanding how to to ask her friends to do something for her it's, and to help her. Well, and that it's kind of, almost like they become little generals. 
in a sense. Exactly. <laughs> Which is pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that kind of points to your 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 enjoyment with the Star Trek Next Generation series because exactly. Picard was very much a dude who would sit down and say, okay, who can handle this? Yeah, <laughs> and, and I, I'm in no doubt that I'm also impacted by that. Sort of, like there's also, you can see um, waves of culture and one of uh, a formative place of identity for me was sort of the 90s and Star Trek and high school, which is a, a formative place of identity for everybody. And when you write young adult, you realize that the pattern of most young adult literature is the selfishness of ch childhood learning their place in the universe, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is growing up. And so for me, that point is, is all tied up with things like Star Trek Next Generation. And Star Trek Next Generation in and of itself is an example of the sort of wealth and glory of America in the 90s and this idea of diplomacy and all of these things that are also categorized of that generation and that time period in American history where, you know, there was no major economic crisis. You get an economic crisis and suddenly everybody's struggling for figuring out control and... and well, and the stories they tell change. Yes, and the story well. exactly, exactly, and so you can, and you know, Babylon Five was also sort of part of the '90s thing. So mm -hmm. you you get mm -hmm. yeah, and you'll see that something like Battlestar Galactica, which is way darker, and it, so science fiction as what's popular and what does really well on television is also kind of a, a marker of us as as our own. Larger okay. culture moves mm. along and evolves. So going back to the idea of writers trapped in a paradigm of unoriginality, <laughs> how do we break think, out of that? How do, how, I, I think mean, that's, if we're trapped, what do we do? It's me just attacking the hero's, <laughs> hero's journey, I, I think. Um, I also did a blog post, which I don't like to, to, to be too negative. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> but I did, a, I did a blog post about tropes I really don't like, and the hero's journey is one of them. Uh, partly because I just find it so predictable now. You're like, oh, he's going to do this, he's going to do this, he's going to have a sort of faded love affair that may or may not work out well, and then he or she, I suppose, is going to save the world single-handedly and yawn. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, here we been go. There, done that. Yeah, and I've just read it so many times. Um, right. And this is sort of a jadedness that comes with that. Um, well, is there a place where, and you had mentioned the lack of, of scholasticism applied to the Demeter cycle. Is there any any place short of actually examining those myths and, and pulling from them the, the, the elements that we can apply to our stories. Is there any documentation or, or scholarship? I here? have searched so hard for this. I've even gone so far as to go back to my favorite professor who taught um, several courses in this at, at university and been like, why aren't you writing this book? <laughs> like, um, and actually I've talked with uh, my friend Dan Sawyer um, and his partner Kitty at Autistic Whispers and they did a great whiteboard for a Kickstarter that we did and I want to do a whiteboard for the hero's journey and then a whiteboard for the heroine's journey as like a you know and I I just like frankly I just haven't had the time <laughs> like I just go up there and we'll do a white doodle board kind of thing yeah. he does wonderful work on doodles like that doodlegrams um just because I'd love to be able to point people to a really simple thing that's just mm. that's just here this is the heroine's journey and basically here is its deviations from the hero's journey. Right. Not that we have to do the hero's journey only in how it compares to the hero's journey. It's just that the hero's is so much better known. And it broadens the palette. It broadens yeah. the writer's palette to, to yeah. pick a framework that applies to the story they want to mm. tell. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which is um, cool. I, it's just that with the hero's journey, and I think what my frustration was with that interview is that so many people use that without even realizing that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It, it really has been ingrained in our, our storytelling culture ever since you know Bill Moyer did the, the Power of Myth series and really popularized Campbell's work. Yeah. And, and you can, like, and I, and I'm learning as a, as an author and as a reader, um, and you will see the little twitch in my eyes with certain conversations. And, uh, and, and, Friends, watch out for that twitch. Yeah. And if I'm talking to a, an author and we're talking about our favorite, our favorite television or something and some, and somebody usually male uh, says that they're a huge fan of Star Wars. I can usually be like, mm, I'm probably not going to run and read your books. <laughs> that's a terrible thing to say. But um, And another twitchy, twitchy, twitchy is if I ask somebody to describe a book they really love and they immediately start with concept rather than character. Mm. Uh, Mm. That will often be like, mm, I'm not, I'm not, I've never been into RPGs. I'm not that big on the world building. I kind of feel like anybody can create a pretty cool and nifty world. Tell me about the characters. Are they cool and nifty and different? That's intriguing. I hadn't cool. considered that distinction, but yeah, that makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. Well, look, guys, I, I, I hate to do this, but the, the clock has launched a dirigible and, and it's armed with cannons and it's pointed at me. So I, I can, I, I don't know what to do exactly other than to, I think, I think it's trying to tell me we need to wrap this up, which, which breaks my heart because this has been fabulous. Gail Carragher, thank you so much for filling our heads with awesomeness and, and sharing so generously. This has been marvelous. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Lauren, holy crap, there's a lot of writerly goodness in that I'm just going to come out and say half hour or so of fabulosity. Uh, yeah. uh, what, what are you, what, what's the, what's the, the top of your list? What are you taking away from this that's going to like change your world? Well, I am definitely going to delve into the heroine's journey. Um, oh I was God, a classics yes. major myself. So when, when Gail said that about uh, the myth of Demeter, I am I am all over that. And so I definitely think finding a new modality of storytelling is going to be, um, or or not new, but uh, finding a different one from the hero's journey we all t- we all know and um, lo- love, don't love, love, love whatever question you know. mark. <laughs> love, question, we all we all we all know and have feelings about yes. um, is going to be. Uh, Definitely a a good way to figure out how to get out of that that trap of unoriginality. Yeah, yeah, excellent, and and I agree that that also knocked me between the eyes. Um, but for me, it was it was really there were two things, and they're kind of related. Uh, uh, one was right at the beginning when she, when Gail was talking about how it, it's it's a scene that launches the story for her. Once she has that scene and the characters and the dialogue, and and she's compelled to know what led up to the scene and what happens next, that that's when she hits the the outlining, and and that makes sense to me. And and as a theater major, of course, I can. Totally relate to the whole scene, the mise en scene experience, <laughs> blah blah blah, um, and also, and because I'm the host, I can cite to um, the, <laughs> the thing right at the end where it's like, if somebody's going to describe a book and they lead with concept, that you know, the more I think about that, the more I think, yeah, I want to write stories where where people say it's got this great character, I love this character, and that is going to change the way I wait 
W-E-I-G-H-T, uh, mm-hmm. uh, my, my process and, and how much I'm going to focus on making sure those characters are integral to the story and utterly fucking fascinating. Uh, so, so those two things really plugged my brains and that was fabulous. So friends, here's the fabulosity of the round table. You just had your brains stuffed with awesomeness and, and now it's sitting there perking and saying, what do I do with this? Well, I'll tell you here, here's one thing you can do. You can sit around and wait for seven days. And I know it's a long time, but wait for seven days and then come back because we're going to have Gail and we're going to have Lauren back. And then we're going to introduce into the mix a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer who's going to toss a story bomb into the midst of this <laughs> and it's going to detonate and there's going to be an explosion of brainstorming the likes of which you have never seen before. So that's in seven days. Do come back and catch that. But damn, it's always seven days long. Lauren, it's always so damn long. What, 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 can our, what can our listeners do between now and seven days from now so that they don't just literally die from waiting? Well, seven days, you know, if you read at double pace for YA, I think that means you can get through all of the Parasol Protectorate series <laughs> and all of the YA series provided you're listening to this in November. And if you haven't, if you're listening to this before November, you can get through three of the finishing school books and the uh, and the first prudence book. So I think they should be reading Gail's stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> Prior to NaNoWriMo, of course. You know, we oh, don't yes. want to get in the mm-hmm. way of that. But, uh, yeah. but you're right. Don't mess I with think, the NaNo. I think there's time for that. There's absolutely time for that. Good advice. Excellent advice. Yeah. <laughs> and I will tell you, dear friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for the wow. Look for the oh, hell yeah. Look for the fabulosity in the world. And I I promise you, if you look for it, you will find it. We will be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, Join in on the conversation or just learn more about us. Visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.